Heavenly Father, we thank you for the supreme act of love and commitment that we see in this table today. Father, would you speak to us? Show us what our part is in all of this. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, for you are my rock and my redeemer. And we give this time to you now. Speak to us, Lord, for it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I am a person that does not have unlimited resources. You know what they say, if you go to a restaurant and, the, and, and there's no prices on the menu, and they say, you know, if you, uh, if you have to ask the price, you're in the wrong place. Well, I'm in the wrong place in those places. In fact, I am constantly asking, you know, how much is it going to cost? I had my car, believe it or not, I had my car at the shop, and uh, they're working on it. And as they're working on it, I'm getting phone calls. Every time I got a, every time I, the phone said it was the shop calling, I'm like, oh, here we go again. And every time I had to say, when they said, well, it really needs this, okay, how much are we talking here? And sometimes I said yes, sometimes I said no. And they were like, well, no, you don't want us to? No, no, I don't want you to do that. I can't, that that's not me. I, I have to count the cost when it comes to things like this. So now the car is running, it's, it's, it's doing really well, and I'm discovering I have to count the cost again every time I go to the gas station, okay? Do I really want to go there? Do I really want to, you know, we're, we're, we're portioning, portioning out how far we are driving. We go to the store and there's thing, you know, it'd be really nice to have that for dinner, but that's a little high. So we, we all live this way pretty much, right? There, there's probably a few of us that don't really have to think about things like how much things cost, but for most of us, that's the real world. That's the reality that we live in. And today, we are going to see that there is a cost as well to being a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus quite often encourages us, tells us, commands us really to count the cost of following him. In fact, that's really the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount that we went through last spring. The whole point of the Sermon on the Mount was over and over again. If you found yourself like me saying, really? <laughs> Some of those things that Jesus would say, he's getting us to count the cost. And guess what? It's going to be a really moment again today because that's where Jesus is going to go. And in fact, guys, it's a great day for it. I love the way God puts things together. I don't organize uh, where we are in the text along with where, when we come to the communion table. We do communion every two months, and wherever we are in the text, that's where we just happen to be. But I love it when God brings it together like this, because the topic today is discipleship and our commitment to Christ and counting the cost. And is that not exactly what we do when we come to this table as we think of what Christ did and the cost that he paid and what he calls us to as well? Martin Luther said it this way, a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. Daniel Berigen, a, uh, a Jesuit priest, said this, if you want to follow Jesus, you had better look good on wood. <laughs> a reference there to Matthew 16, 24, which we'll be seeing in a couple of minutes. A good example of uh, opinions that people would have on following Jesus Christ come from two very influential books 
that are in the tw- uh, of the 20th and early 21st century that, that come from really two different perspectives on what it means to be a follower of Christ. The first one comes from a guy by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you know, have heard that name. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a theologian and pastor in Germany in the early 20th century. He ended up becoming a, a very vocal opponent of the Nazi regime and what was happening. And he did that at a time when many in the church were just sort of going along with what was happening. In the end, Bonhoeffer gave his life for his commitment to Christ. In fact, he had traveled to London and realized, I need to go back to Germany. And people said to him, well, you shouldn't go back there. It's dangerous for you. And he said, I will have no place to stand in the reconstruction of Germany if I don't go and suffer with the believers there now. Well, he certainly suffered in 1945. He was executed uh, for his, his beliefs and for his faith. And one of the, uh, his, his masterwork, if you will, his magnum opus is this book entitled The Cost of Discipleship. If you haven't read it, you ought to. It's a classic of Christian literature. And it's really a treatment of the Sermon on the Mount. He basically talks about, he, he bases it on the Sermon on the Mount. Let me give you an example of what he says discipleship is. The cross is laid on every Christian. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Well, there are other opinions about what it means to be a follower of Christ, and maybe on the other end of the spectrum comes from a guy who is equally as popular, or probably more so than Bonhoeffer because we know of him, but a guy by the name of Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen is the pastor of the largest church in America. He wrote a book, Your Best Life Now, which became an uh, an instant bestseller. And here's how he views discipleship uh, from his book. What do you see when you look into your future? Do you see yourself getting stronger, healthier, and happier? Is your life filled with God's blessing, favor, and victory? You must begin to see it if you truly hope for it to come to pass. Well, of course, I, also, I often ask myself, what does Jesus say? Where does he come down on the two of these? You be the judge. Matthew 16, 24, we know the passage. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Make no mistake, what that means is die, okay? Take up your cross. I'm not talking about jewelry or bumper stickers or t-shirts. He's talking about death. That's what the cross was. For whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Some of you will remember back in the 80s, a a, a comedian, a stand-up comic uh, that came from the Soviet Union, a guy by the name of Yakov Shmirnov. And Yakov Shmirnov came to America, and he didn't speak a lick of English. And over the years, he developed, you know, obviously he learned English, but his act was basically taking uh, the English language and sort of pointing out some of the the interesting things. His his tagline was, in speaking of the United States, what a country, okay? Here's, when he first got here and and began doing his act, here's one of his, uh, a quote from one of his, from his act. He says, on my first shopping trip, I saw powdered milk. You just add water and you get milk. And then I saw powdered orange juice. You just add water and you get orange juice. And then I saw 
baby powder. And I thought to myself, what a country. (laughs) Now I share that because believe it or not, that's what a lot of people think Christianity is. That, you know, that you just add water and voila, instant Christianity. You go to church once in a while, you say your prayers, you read your Bible now and then, and you invite Jesus to be, come into your heart as your personal Savior. You do that, and you're good. You can have your own goals and your own ambitions. You can live your life the way you want to live your life. You can do it your way and find yourself in heaven one day. You can be a church like this one. Imagine a church where every member is passionately, wholeheartedly, and recklessly calling the shots. I have a busy work week, and by the time Sunday rolls around, I'm tired. So how about a church service that starts when I get there? Can do. When you arrive, we begin. This guy, he plays by his own rules. We want to find a church where if he starts screaming, we're not the bad guys, right? Say no more. If your baby's screaming, you stay seated. The others around you can leave. You know, financially, Sherry and I don't give a lot to the church, but we'd sure like to know who does. All right, if you join now, you'll know what every person gives in detail. When I'm in the church service, can my car get a buff and a wax? Not just that, but an oil change and a tune-up. Hey, how about tickets to the Super Bowl? That's asking too much. I'm serious. If I'm going to join, I want tickets to the big game. All right, you join now and we'll get you there. I like a pony. Look in your backyard. (laughs) Me Church, where it's all about you. A little bit of hyperbole there, and yet, I don't know about you, but that kind of hits a couple of spots. Uh, You know, I'm not, maybe not be asking for ponies, but don't we all kind of come here because, you know, I, I can't, I, I think of the amount of times people have said to me, well, I'm not being fed. Well, I, I didn't realize I was your nanny. I didn't realize it was my responsibility to feed you and to, to make, to, to nourish you. I mean, I, you know, I feel like I'm setting a good table here. It'd be like my wife setting out dinner for me and I sit there and say, I'm not being fed. And she goes, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, dear. Here, let me, let me, let me give it to you. And yet we do, we do tend to think of it that way, don't we? Is that what Jesus meant when he called us? Well, obviously no. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Is there a difference between a believer and a disciple of Jesus? I believe there is, and I believe that's the question that's before us today in our passage. If you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 8. We're going to pick up in verse 18 as we continue in our series, His Kingdom Come, in the book of Matthew. We are going passage by passage, uh, section by section, sometimes word by word, through the Gospel of Matthew. I encourage you to take notes. If you got cards at the door, if you didn't get a card, put your hand up. We'll get a card to you. On the back are a series of questions that I've written for our life groups this week. Join a life group or else, uh, you know, feel free to use those questions in your own. Uh, If you're joining with us online, welcome. It's great to have you with us and everything I've talked about is available on our church app. So make sure you download the church app. One thing we have been seeing in this, uh, as we've come back to Matthew here in the fall, is how popular Jesus has become. 
To say that the crowds were following Jesus is very much of an understatement. We see prior to the Sermon on the Mount that the crowds were around Jesus. In Matthew 4, we read the great crowds followed Jesus from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And seeing those crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And so then Jesus preaches to those crowds. And then after he's done, the crowds continue to follow him. We see that in Matthew 7. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. And when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And as we've been seeing for the past three weeks, those crowds now are witnessing Jesus backing up what he said on the Sermon on the Mount. He backed it up with it's not just words, it's actions. And so he healed a leper, as we saw three weeks ago. He healed the centurion's servants, as we saw a couple of weeks ago. He did that long distance, didn't even have to be there. And then last week we saw how he healed Peter's mother-in-law of her fever. And in our passage today, we need to see we see what it takes to be a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Some of the things we need to do, some of the ways we need to count the cost. And the first one is this, with all of these crowds around him, nevertheless, leave the crowd behind. That's the example we see from Christ this morning. Look at verse 18. When Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Now, it's still early, believe it or not, it, it's early in the ministry of Jesus and the disciples, and instead of capitalizing on this popularity, because, you know, people are coming, there's just there's, there's hundreds, maybe even thousands of people that are crowding around Jesus, that are wanting to be there for him, and yet Jesus, oddly enough, wants to get away from the crowd. Now, it's, it's easy to see why. Jesus has become popular but the thing is, popularity is not Jesus' goal. Jesus' goal, his desire, is commitment. And by leaving, by going to the other side of the lake, the Sea of Galilee, you could say that one of the things he's doing in doing that is sifting out those who are unwilling to go out of their way in order to follow him. I can see them now. Wait, wait, what? You're getting into a boat? You're going, I, I don't have time for that. I got to get dinner on. I, my, my program's coming on. I got things I got to do. And, and so that's one way, if you're not willing to, in this case, literally follow Jesus, then you're not going to be one of his followers. He saw something, I believe, and I don't have to even just believe it. We see this throughout the gospels, that Jesus saw something in this crowd that he didn't like. This crowd was there because of the spectacle. These are people, and we see this a few times, they wanted miracles, they wanted healings, they wanted food, as Jesus would often even feed them miraculously. They were excited for what Jesus could do for them. I don't believe, guys, that it's all that different. I, I think the quote of Osteen sort of even uh, feeds that. You know, Jesus will do these things for you. Jesus will, he wants you successful. He wants you healthy. He wants you wise. And, and it is estimated that there are, are over 214 million individuals in the United States who consider themselves born again, born again believers. 214 million of us. And yet there are differences, I believe, and I think scripture teaches, between a crowd of believers and those who desire 
to be disciples of Jesus. And here's some of the differences that we see in this passage. For once, for one thing, the crowd loved Jesus, as we said, for what Jesus could do for them. But if you're a disciple of Jesus, you have a hunger for him. They, a disciple wants Jesus himself, even if he doesn't give them anything. For them, Jesus is the blessing. The crowd enjoyed listening to Jesus teach. But disciples wanted to think like Jesus. They wanted to pray like Jesus. They wanted to be like Jesus. The crowd wanted a savior who could rescue them from all of their problems. The disciples wanted a king to rule over their lives. The crowd received what they wanted from Jesus and then pretty much at the end especially went on their way and lived their lives. Disciples, however, give up everything to be with Jesus and to join him in his work. Here's the thing, guys. Don't follow Jesus because of the size of the crowd. Guard against, as Chuck Swindoll says, becoming a groupie of a church or a ministry or a celebrity preacher or pastor. Steer clear, as he says, of becoming a fan. Here's what Swindoll says. Do you just go through the motions, doing what the crowd does and saying what the crowd says while Jesus is really kept at a distance? The screws are tightening on Christians in our increasingly secular world. Amen? Have you noticed that? <laughs> it's a world that is antagonistic to Christian beliefs and values. We're coming into the holidays, so get ready. You're going to start hearing about how Jesus was a, a myth that was made up. And I mean, it's, it seems like all the shows are going to come on that are going to try to attempt to prove to us that Christ, Christmas and, and the holidays and Jesus are not what we think they are, not what the Bible says. And if, in fact, only those, as Swindoll says, those who are true followers rather than groupies will stand. So like Jesus and our disciples and the disciples in our passage today, leave the crowd behind. That's the first thing we need to do. What else do we see here that we need to do? It gets a little more uh, personal. Expect, guys, that it's going to be difficult. Go into this understanding that this is hard and it's hard by design. And there's not something wrong because this is so hard. Look at verse, uh, as they're packing up to leave to go to the other side, along comes this individual who I would consider to be a fairly surprising individual. Look at verse 19. And a scribe came up to him and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Did you catch that? This is different, man. This is a, a scribe. Usually the scribes are against Jesus. It was the religious leaders and the scribes and the Pharisees who ultimately plotted and carried out their mission to, to kill Jesus. But here is a scribe of all people who wants to follow Jesus. Now, just so you know, a scribe could be defined as a professional scholar. He was the, they were experts on the scripture. They were the legal specialists in the Jewish culture. They were often lawyers, uh, literally lawyers. They interpreted the law. They were highly respected. They were looked up to by everybody. 
And here's one who wants to follow this rabbi by the name of Jesus. This is not an unusual thing. That's how that, that would happen with all rabbis. Rabbis like Jesus would travel around and people would come up and they would say, I want to follow you. And when you followed a particular rabbi or teacher, that meant placing yourself under their teaching, living with them, sitting at their feet. Essentially what he's doing here is this scribe is saying, I want to enroll in the school of Jesus. And I want to follow you. And who wouldn't after you see the kind of things that Jesus has been doing? And, and not only would Jesus be good for this guy, but you could make a pretty good case that this guy would be good for Jesus as well. I mean, think about it. This guy is a scribe. Everybody looks up to him. Not like those scruffy fishermen or tax collectors or blue collar types that Jesus continues to, to gather around him. This guy, this scribe, could give Jesus some credibility even with the Jewish authorities. They might treat him with a little more respect now. Scribes are following him. And yet we don't get any indication that Jesus went to any great length to sign him up right away. He didn't jump, oh boy, a scribe. Oh, this is going to look good on the, on the bottom line. In fact, Jesus does just the opposite. Look at verse 20. So this guy says, I want to follow you. Jesus says to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus, as you could argue, is at the height of his popularity right now, at least in the early part of his ministry. And it's entirely possible that this guy might want to just join in order to sort of jump on the gravy train and sort of, you know, uh, just bask in the glow of the success and popularity that Jesus is having. And I don't see what Jesus is saying to him here as a rebuke or really even an invitation. It's more like a challenge. It's like when Jesus says, take up your cross and, and follow me. Jesus' followers, in other words, what he's doing here is he's encouraging this guy to count the cost. You need to have the right motivation. I know you think this is exciting. I know you think this could probably look good on your resume. This is good for your career. In addition to all the other religious stuff I'm doing, I was a follower of Jesus. You know, the miracle guy, the guy that fed and the guy that, that did miracles and healings and, and, and taught wonderful things. The average person would look at this and think that Jesus is pretty lucky in this case. A man of this caliber wants to join. But for what Jesus had in mind for his disciples, to be honest, guys, the mentality of the fishermen was far better than what this guy was going to need. Fishermen, you see, they were men of action. They were men that, that were used to being away from home. And from what Jesus says here, what he's basically inviting them to is an extended camping trip, okay? Foxes and birds have it better than us, guys. We're gonna go out. We're gonna be, I'm inviting you to be homeless with me. And what did they do? What do scribes need with what they do? Well, scribes, their job requires a quiet place, a place for study and reflection on the scriptures. Instead, as Jesus says here, you're going to be homeless with me. There won't be any of that quiet stuff going on. We might be able to get away sometime, but it's going to be in a hole or in a nest. And notice, it's the first of many times 
that Jesus here uses his favorite title for himself. 83 times in the Gospels, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. If you want to write this down, Daniel 7, 13 and 14 is where that phrase comes from. And without getting into a lot of the details of it, what Jesus is doing here when he says this is he is indicating that he is the Messiah. He is the king. Now, he could have said, I'm the Messiah, but that carries in that culture at that time, that carries a lot of baggage with it. They're looking for a military ruler and all of that. To say that I'm the son of man requires that you know how Daniel defines the son of man. And there's no doubt that the scribe understood the reference because that's his job. So in the same breath, he realizes, and maybe some of the others do, maybe not, but the scribe definitely realizes that here Jesus, in the same breath, is claiming the ultimate glory and power of the Son of Man that Daniel talks about, but now he also points out that there's going to be earthly poverty and homelessness. Now, we don't have any record of whether or not this scribe actually went with Jesus, and I'll be honest with you, I'd be surprised if he did after this encounter. I remember I read this week one pastor comparing following Jesus to seeing a military parade, say at Veterans Day or Memorial Day or the 4th of July. And if you've ever seen the military parades where they're in their starched uniforms and they have their white gloves and maybe a column of tanks is following behind them and the military band is playing and they're marching along and boy, they look spiffy. And I'll tell you, as a kid, I can imagine if I'd have seen something, oh, I did see things like that. And I remember thinking, I want to be one of those guys. I want to be a soldier. I want to put on the starched suit and wear the white gloves and march in the band and have them play and have people cheer for me. But you know what? If you're a member of the military, it isn't about marching in parades. It isn't about brass bands. It isn't about people cheering. It's about blood and sacrifice and, and being on the battlefield and dismemberment and, it's, and horrible things. That's why one person said the whole purpose of the military is to kill people and break things, okay? That's your job. Our purpose is not in the military to go march in parades. And guys, in the same way, it's the same for each one of us. It's great to be a part of a church, isn't it? We get together and we have fellowship. We can comfort one another. We can encourage one another. And those are all necessary. And that's why we do it. We can worship together. But as I've often said, Crosswinds Church should not be seen as the place to come to. This isn't the the, the goal of what we do as a member of the church. We don't come together on Sunday morning to do this. No, Crosswinds Church is a place to go out from. We come here together to get our marching orders to go out and to do in our worlds what we are praying for the opportunity to do. I think about those people in my world that God has placed me within, the people in my neighborhood, the people at my work, the people in school, the people that I meet day to day, and I put their names on a list and I start praying for them. If you wonder what this card I'm waving around, there's, there's some available in the hallway. And this is how we, we actively reach out to our worlds because this is what it's all about, not what we're doing here. This is preparing us 
for what he's called us to do. This is what it means to be a disciple, to pray for an opportunity to reach out to the people in my world and share the gospel with them or invite them to a place where they're going to hear the gospel, bring them here. We're coming into the holidays. And as I say every year, do you know that the vast majority of people say, I would go to church, even if I'm not a church member and have nothing to do with church, nevertheless, I would go to church during the Christmas season if somebody would just invite me. And yet the vast majority of them would say, nobody asked me to come. And so that's what I am doing. That's what we hopefully are doing is praying for those opportunities, praying for those, those openings where we can say, you want to come with me or you want to hear about my Lord Jesus Christ. And guys, trust me, a lot of the people in your world, they are not going to be encouraging. They're probably not going to be, in fact, they're probably going to ask more of you than they give to you. That's what it means to be a discipler. Like I said last week, that oftentimes the, the very act of just living here, I, I say this because increasingly I hear of, of people that are, you know, getting out of California. Now I know there's good reasons to leave. There's some people that are here today that are leaving because you're taking care of family or, or things like that. But there's a lot more people that are leaving because, you know, it costs more money to live here. Or I don't like the environment that my kids are having to live in. Or I don't like the, and, and they've got all of these reasons I think of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said when he said, the, the place that Christians ought to be is where the fire is the hottest. And we live in California, guys. Whatever's going on starts here. We are at the, in the thick of what God is doing. So if God is calling you to, to leave, just be sure that it's God and it's not us seeking a, a better thing for ourselves, to seek to, to grab the golden ring and, and leave and, and experience all that God has for me when possibly, I would say even probably, it's right here. So leave that crowd behind and expect that it's going to be difficult. Just get out of your head that it's somehow something is wrong if it's hard. No, hard is the default. It's supposed to be hard. That's what it means to be a disciple. And there's one more thing. Here it is. When called by God, come immediately. Now, the scribe was somebody who obviously was new to Jesus. He showed up and said, let me, let me come to you. And, and he hadn't followed Jesus before this time. But now, Jesus is approached by somebody who is already a follower of Christ. He's, he's called a disciple. Verse 21, another of the disciples. By the way, I should, I should define this for you just in case. When we talk about the disciples of Jesus, we're not just, and the scriptures are not just talking about the 12 disciples that we know of who ultimately became the 12 apostles upon whom the church, you know, was the foundation of the church, as Paul said. Uh, but the disciples of Jesus, there were many, many more. In fact, in Luke 10, we read of 72 of Jesus' disciples that he sent out two by two to go out and do ministry. So there were dozens of people that were following Jesus. There were women, uh, whole groups of women that were following with him. So there's a crowd, essentially, of Jesus, a smaller crowd than the crowd he told him to get away from. So here, it's one of these guys. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. I don't know about you, but I read that and I'm like, whoa, could Jesus get more cold-hearted? 
I mean, a guy can't even go to his dad's funeral. That's what you're asking of me, Lord. Instead, if you really love me, you'll skip the funeral. Well, of course, that's not what's being said here. That's not what Jesus is doing. One of the things, when you interpret what's going on in Scripture, it has to be interpreted in light of Scripture. And there is all kinds of stuff in Scripture about how you are to raise your family, how you are to uh, honor your father and mother, one of the big ten, okay? So that's not what's happening. And so when we, when we seek to understand what's really going on here, first off, we recognize that that phrase, let me go and bury my father, was a common phrase at that time. And in fact, it's still a phrase that is used today. What we're seeing here is almost certainly this guy's father was not dead. He wasn't getting ready for a funeral. And, and why do we know that? Because this guy wouldn't have been here to ask the question had his father died. He would be preparing the funeral, getting stuff ready. In fact, his father probably wasn't even sick. This phrase means that what he's saying is, I need to go and take care of my father, and eventually my father is going to die, and then I'll get his inheritance, and then, Lord, I will be in a good financial position to really follow you. I'll be in a place where I can follow you wholeheartedly without any encumbrances, uh, particularly financing. This, this guy probably thinks here that discipleship, that following Jesus is something that you can pick up or something you can lay down. And what he's doing here, it's pretty much accepted, is he's putting his own personal means ahead of what Jesus is calling him to do. Following Jesus right now, which is what Jesus is saying, follow me. I mean, he's saying it directly, follow me. He's basically saying to him, that's just too much, Lord. That's too costly. But when I get my father's estate, then I'm going to be able to afford it. Then there will be financial comfort in my life and in my family. In other words, I'm coming to you, Jesus, on my terms. And until you know all this, Jesus' answer to him seems really harsh. But guys, that's just, an, I think, another example of how we really don't understand what discipleship truly is. When you boil it all down, let me make it easy for you. Jesus, I believe, is responding to one word that this guy said. And the one word is first. He said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And folks, if we are truly Jesus' disciples, he always has to come first. Jesus is not being heartless here. He's calling him, and by the way, he's calling every one of us to examine what is my primary loyalty in life. Who is first in my life? Jesus is demonstrating here by this answer that he sees through the smokescreen that this guy is putting up. Oh, it sounds very noble. I got to go. I got to take care of my dad. I got to be a good son. And, and, and that's certainly something that, that Scripture says we all ought to be. You know, we should respect our parents, honor our father and our mother. But the real issue that Jesus' answer points out to us is this guy's need for comfort and security. And if there's one thing we're seeing today, comfort and security, guys, are no longer compatible with being a disciple of Jesus Christ, a true disciple of Jesus Christ. It's not going to be comfortable. At the very least, people are going to wonder about you. Are you really, uh, are you really all there? You, you believe this stuff? And furthermore, you, you, you behave like it. You, you order your life around these kinds of things. And when Jesus here says this phrase, let the dead bury the dead, what he's probably getting at here is the spiritually dead. 
There's probably family members at home who don't know the Lord, who had no belief for Jesus Christ, no desire to follow him. And Jesus is saying, you know what? Let one of those guys take care of this stuff. Let, let one of those guys take care of your dad. Honestly, what this guy is saying here is, I want a rain check. I, I, I want a, a chance to sort of skip out on following you until I get the stuff done that I want to do, and then I'll come back, and then I'll be totally there, Lord. And what's Jesus' answer to him? Follow me now. There's no time to wait months or years. If you want in, then you need to be all in right now. Bottom line, guys, Jesus is asking this guy, are you going to put me first or not? And if the answer is no, if the guy you know, persevered and said, well, I really need to go, I, I fully expect that Jesus would say to him, okay, well then go. Go take care of your father. You've made your choice. People, if you're going to follow Jesus, then follow Jesus. Do it. Don't have reservations. Don't have some kind of hidden agenda. Don't try to, to, to fool yourself into thinking, okay, I'm following him, but you're really not. And if you're not going to follow Jesus, have the strength of those convictions. Just stand up and say, you know what? I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to follow what I want to follow. I'm going I'm to make money right now. I'm going I'm I'm to devote myself to, you know, fill in the blank, whatever it is you're going to do. One of my favorite speeches in Scripture is when Joshua, as he was uh, finishing up his leadership of the children of Israel after they had conquered Canaan, and he gathers all the children of Israel together in Shechem. And he, he leads them in a service of recommitment to the Lord. The, the renewal of their covenant with God. And Joshua challenges them in this way. And I love what he says here in Joshua 24. He says to them, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And then look at this. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, okay, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. In other words, serve the Lord or go serve those other gods. Serve who you're going to serve. Be honest with yourself. But as for me and my house, just so you know, we're going to serve the Lord. Amen. Yeah. And I love, if you read on, I, I would encourage you to write that, that Joshua 24. If you read on, of course, you know, he's whipping the crowd up and they all go, we're going to serve the Lord. And it's funny because Joshua says, no, you aren't. You're stiff necked. You're evil. You're sinners. You don't serve the Lord. You've proven over and over. And what do they do? They go, no, no, you're wrong. We are going to serve the Lord. Well, yes, we know the history of uh, the children of Israel is a checkered one, but it's just interesting how Joshua in, you know, is in God's place and in place of who, what Jesus is saying here is saying, whatever you're going to serve, serve it wholeheartedly. Be who you are. If you have higher priorities than serving Jesus, or if you want things easier in your life, trust me, then you are missing out on the entire point of discipleship. A call to follow Jesus is a call to urgency right now. As we've seen today, Leave the crowd behind. Expect that it's going to be difficult. And when called, come immediately. What about you today? Are you just, as Swindoll says, a fan of Jesus? 
Are you just one of the crowd? Are you just here because a group of people are here and I just followed along? Do you come to Jesus as he really is or as you wish he would be? Have you created your own version of Jesus and have decided I'm going to follow him like the scribe? Or do you come to him without reservations? Do you, or, or, or are you one that needs to be well taken care of before committing your life to a life of discipleship and a life of service? Let me, let me get everything settled first, and then, Lord, I'll follow you. Are you holding out for a comfortable, low-risk calling, or are you willing to do whatever? Are you willing to do it whenever, and are you willing to do it wherever? That's what God is calling us to. That's what Jesus is telling them here. He wants genuine, committed, bold disciples, those who will carry on this work that he left for us. So that's the question this morning. Are you one of those disciples? Am I one of those disciples? As I look at what I take away from this, the first one is obvious. As I look at that, look at this passage, I ask myself, am I following Jesus or am I following the crowd? The elders can come on up and begin preparing for communion. The second one I ask myself is, am I, what am I willing to put up with? Foxes and birds have it better than us, Jesus says. Am I willing to be homeless if necessary? Am I willing to endure whatever comes my way for being a follower of Christ? And finally, number three, am I willing to come when I am called? What do I do first? By the way, he is calling you right now, today. He's given us the great commandment that we are to love God and to love others. He's given us the great commission to go into all the world and make disciples. We are all being called right now.